into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh and not to be confused with a bottomless pit because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm your friendly neighborhood host, podcaster, seminarian, Samson Kovach, coming back to you with another edition of The Theology Pit. So we left off on verse 19 of chapter 2 in Galatians and we're going to pick up there. I'm going to go back to the beginning and just kind of... uh, remind us, you know, so we don't got to go back and listen to the last podcast of, of what's going on here. So verse 19, I translate it as therefore the law, therefore through the law, I am dead to the law in order that I might live in God. Now dying through the law has a perplexing shift in Paul's thoughts and many of the commentaries cited here um, found difficulty with this passage as can be noted by the differing uh, explanations that you're going to hear. Knowing exactly why Paul didn't say that he died through the cross will give pause to the interpreter. Um, Martin explains the significance with um, drawing uh, by, by drawing attention to the namo in in the dative, the the law in the dative, um, with uh, epithenon, which is as particular to Paul, meaning to be separated from that thing by the event of one's own death. So the law becomes personified as an additional character in Paul's account. In the event of Christ's crucifixion, Martin writes, the law did not stand idly aside. It pronounced a curse on Christ, effectively taking up its own existence and carrying out its own activity. All right, and it did this apart from God. Paul's participation in Christ's crucifixion was thus a participation in the event in which the law acted against God's Christ. Matera finds it uh, finds help understanding Paul in Romans 7 and verse 21 of Galatians 2. His meaning Paul, uh, meaning his meaning here is clarified by what he says in Romans. By association with Christ's death through baptism, Christians die to the law. Thus, Paul writes, In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Romans 7.4 This happened dianamu, or through the law, because Christ died under the law. 3.13 Longnecker follows in like manner with Matera regarding Paul's understanding of dying to something. In Pauline usage, Longnecker writes, to die to something is to cease to have any further relation to it. Scott McKnight understands verse 19, looking through Romans 7, as an example for the Gentile Christians to not create their own type of law that would exclude others based on ethnic or cultural backgrounds. McKnight writes this, The ego among the Gentiles that needs to die is the ego which attempts to pollute the gospel. And surely a subspecies of this ego is the one that thinks the death of the Son of God is not good enough and instead needs to assert itself. But, as I say, this is a subspecies. The real issue is the attempt to erect national privilege as boundary, Jews and Gentiles. Paul died to the law 
and here he urges Peter to die with him in Christ's death. And um, ego just means I am. So Hayes disagrees with using Romans to shed light on this verse because, quote, in Romans, it is clear that no one dies to the law, not through the law, but through the body of Christ. Romans uh, 7, 4 in the NRSV, i.e. through union with his death in baptism, Romans 6, 1 through 11, Hayes seems to allow for the opaqueness by stating, quote, Paul does not offer any explanation of this point, and we may well be advised to concede that we do not know exactly what Paul meant by this aphoristic statement, through the law, I died to the law. Looking for clues to understanding verse 19 in the letter itself, Deborah has noticed the apocalyptic language here and in the first chapter. The apocalyptic event for Deborah is, quote, an event that spells out the end of an of, of the old age, where malevolent powers hold sway over God's creation. The law is one of those powers. For Deborah, Verses 19 through 21 give reasoning to the jarring statement found in verse 18 and parallels between uh, chapter 2 of, of Galatians here, 19 through 21, and uh, one chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 are noteworthy. In thirteen through in, in Galatians chapter one verses thirteen through sixteen, you have uh, words like "in me," patriarchal traditions, his son, his grace, and in two nineteen through twenty one, you have again "in me." Instead of patriarchal traditions, you have the law. Then you have the Son of God, the grace of God. So, continuing with the apocalyptic view, Debor writes that the discontinuity between then and now, discernible in one thirteen through sixteen is emphasized anew in verse 19a with the claim that I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Like Hayes, DeBoer does not think that appealing to Romans is helpful because Paul is writing something familiar to the Galatians that has already been established in chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. Paul's participationist language, writes DeBoer, is not here sacramental, as for many commentators who read Romans 6, 1 through 10 into Galatians 2.19, but it is informed and shaped the categories and motifs native to Jewish cosmological apocalyptic eschatology. The footnote in DeBoer's commentary states, the verse is often interpreted by making complicated theological appeals to other passages in Galatians or Romans, especially chapter 7. Presumably, however, Paul is saying, Paul here is saying something that the Galatians will be able to understand uh, based on what has already been written. According to DeBoer, Paul's life had a radical shift from his intimate relationship with the law to his intimate relationship in Christ. Paul himself died to the law through the law because his zealous devotion to the law and its works led him to persecute the very church of God, effecting a collision between the law and Christ, the final result of which was his death to that law. Now, the other side of the argument um, for the 
um, objective generative side, the faith in Christ side, um, would say that the law with its effects are in focus for Paul regarding his relation to it. Reichen observes that, quote, anyone who failed to keep everything God's law required, and note in Galatians 2.19, Paul is referring to the whole law of God, not just the ceremonial, and the new perspective on Paul and the law, as the new perspective uh, on Paul and the law would have it, was condemned to die. John Calvin said that, quote, to die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion. So we have no confidence in it, and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. Calvin views the law as providing death and not life by its very nature and our relation to it. The phrase through the law, according to Calvin, would, quote, be better understood by comparing it with Romans 7. John Brown understands Paul as speaking for himself with ego, or I am, translated with the understanding, as for me. Brown understands, uh, Brown's understanding of through the law for Paul then carries with it that he, quote, as a Jew was originally subject. F.F. Bruce also understands this death to the law, satisfies the law using Romans 7, 6. Bruce then focuses on the next phrase of the law, but, Bruce writes, there may also be a note of personal experience in ego dianamu. Paul continues, or I am, you know, uh, through the law. Uh, I am ellipses through the law. Uh, Paul continues to use the first person singular as he speaks for Jewish Christians in general, but the emphatic ego, while it perhaps anticipates the ego of verse 20 that we'll get to, suggests that he knew in a special way what it meant to die through the law. Paul had seen what his life had been in light of Christ and the emptiness, the moral bankruptcy, as Bruce calls it. In this sense, it was through the law that he died to the law. So, Riken quotes Brown as saying that being dead to the law is that the Christian must therefore cease to expect justification and salvation by obedience to its requisitions. The law cannot, cannot promise life. It can only threaten death. Thus, it is through the law that one dies to the law. But Brown continues to say that he's not satisfied with this interpretation because it is it's not naturally induced it does not naturally induce what follows instead it is necessary for the law for quote the law having had run its full course so as to be glorified in the obedience of him to whom uh, to him in whom i am i am completely delivered from the law the law has no more to do with me and i have no more to do with it in the matter of justification through Christ, quote, the law has killed me, and by doing so, it has set me free from myself, unquote. Uh, Daniel Tucson is quoted as having written, quote, to die to the law, therefore, is both to stop seeking justification in the law and being terrified by its curse, and to live for God by being born again, unquote. 
Thomas Schreiner is satisfied with Paul having realized his exhaustion of works, law, righteousness in light of Romans and 1 Corinthians. Writing about the phrase, through the law, Schreiner says, quote, could mean that he died with reference to the law because he failed to observe what the law commands. Failure to do what the law demands, as Paul teaches elsewhere, leads to death. Romans 7, um, 5-25 and 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Such an interpretation would explain the words through the law, dianamu, in a meaningful way, unquote. So, by staying with Pauline thought, collectively through his other letters, we can better understand the meaning of this seemingly opaque concept. Now, what's my take on all this stuff? Well, while I side theologically more towards the new perspective and the subjective genitive uh, aspect, on this verse, um, and Debor in particular, I don't discount the strong emphasis of the law Paul is insinuating. Now, none of these views has had any impact on the translation itself, since most of them agree on the wording as translated. I've chosen the follow to follow the common English form of my of of ending my translation here, and not including um, the the next part of it uh, of this verse, which we'll get to in in verse twenty. This the I have been crucified with Christ. Um, in your translation, as you're looking at verse nineteen, you may see that ending, but I chose not to do that. And. I do recognize that most um, of of the Greek and non-English Bibles, and non-English Bibles that is, uh, include this phrase as, you know, verse 19c it would be. Um, I think it better follows as starting verse 20. Uh, Perhaps fusing the verses together would keep Paul's flow of thought continuous, although that argument could be made regarding the entire pericope here. I mean, all these podcasts that I'm doing on this, you could say these are just, you can't break them up. They're just all, you know, one big thought. So, let's look at verse 20 now. I've translated verse 20 as, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you're looking at, at your translation, you're noticing you know, a, a, a few different things. Not only the, you know, I have been crucified with Christ part, you know, may not be in there. And, and you know, I explained at the end why I... I decided to put that in, but also I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And we're going to dive into why I have chosen these this particular way to translate uh, chapter two, verse twenty of Galatians. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. So, the metaphorical language Paul uses in this verse 
also has the element of reality because of our relationship to Christ through his faith. Commenting on this, um, I've been crucified with Christ, uh, DeBoer writes, quote, Paul means that his noministically determined I was destroyed in the crucifix of Christ, in the crucifixion of Christ. Christ's crucifixion was an event on the stage of human history that Paul regards as the central moment in God's apocalyptic eschatological act of cosmic rectification through the person and work of Christ, his son, unquote. So, focusing on this this part of I have been crucified, you know, really like getting in on just this one word here. Well, I mean, the, the one word is um, uh, sunas tauramai. Um so it's it's one word in Greek, but it has it's it's very pregnant with meaning. Hayes notes that it is in the uh, perfect tense, signifying a completed past action whose effects continue into the present. Paul's union with Christ's crucifixion is not merely a once upon a time event, but a reality that continues to determine his present existence. Matera also understands Paul to mean, quote, that his view, that he views his crucifixion with Christ as an enduring state, unquote. Matera notices two phrases um, that the Greek text emphasizes, I and Christ, by positioning them at the end of their respective phrases. The, phrases, the phrase develops the thought of the preceding verse. We are now in Christ and not associated with the law. Both Jew and Gentile occupy the same space in Christ. Therefore, no distinction can be made regarding sin and table fellowship. Sin has been conquered by Christ, and the law is of no more effect since we have died through it in Christ. In Longnecker's commentary, he looks at Paul's usage of day, and, and it's it, it means but, but um, the first day is untranslated in the Greek uh, of the sentence. Uh, it, it's it's um, continuative, continuative, expressing another aspect of the rationale begun in verse 19. It is certainly not advertisive, contra to the King James Version. The second day, or but, however, is adversative, uh, contrasting the jurisdiction of Christ in the believer's life to that of one's ego, or one's ego, one's I am. Longnecker suggests a form of Christian mysticism regarding, with regards to Christ being in us. Uh, the biblical mysticism is not Eastern or Grecian forms, uh, but better understood as, quote, the nature of a response to God's grace wherein people who have been mercifully touched by God enter into communion with him without ever losing their own identities, unquote. So, continuing into uh, 20B or 20C, depending on how you're looking at it, but we're looking at it as 20B, um, Hayes takes particular notice uh, of uh, some of the participles. Both, Hayes says, are aorist participles, pointing to a singular past event of the cross as the locus of Jesus' love and self-donation. In other words, 
The love which Paul speaks here is not Jesus's warm feeling of affection towards humanity. Rather, it is an enacted love, a love that was made manifest in action and in suffering, leading to a discussion on the use of the subjective genitive uh, with um, the the next part uh, coming up. Uh, Hayes, Matura, DeBoer, Longnecker, and Martin all agree on the translation as a subjective genitive, but they differ slightly on how it is to be expressed. Martin and Matura both seem to strongly suggest faith of rather than faithfulness of, citing back to verse 16 for some of their reasons. Martin also highlights linguistic clues found in Romans 5 that parallel Galatians uh, 2.20. Martin continues, Christ's faith constitutes the space in which one is crucified with Christ can and does live. Longnecker, Hayes, and DeBoer lean lean toward using faithfulness in their translation. Using faithfulness to express what is taking place, DeBoer states um, in verse 20 here, refers to the Son's own faith, in particular his faithful atoning death on the cross. Hayes insists that Paul is not claiming that he lives now by believing in the Son of God. He has, in fact, just rhetorically denied any continuing personal agency at all. Instead, it is now the pistis, the faith of the Son of God, Christ's own self-giving faithfulness that moves in and through him, unquote. Uh, Hayes continues this thought grammatically in his footnote. He says, quote, Here we may well identify with the grammatical construction as an authoritative, authoritative, authoritarian, uh, uh, sorry, it's not authoritarian, authorial genitive, pointing to Jesus as the source or origin of the pistis that now animates Paul's life. Unquote. Longnecker understands the Christian life as lived by faith and that the basis of this faith is the faith of Christ presented as presented in verse 16. Quote, the object of Christian faith is here expressed by the dative article te, um, or the, but it's it follows with the dative, followed by a Christological title in the genitive and by qualifying adjectival phrases also in the genitive. So the other view now says, to have been crucified with Christ is to have died to the law. Schreiner writes, quote, the polarity between the cross and the law pervades all of Galatians. For Luther, to be crucified with Christ is to be dead to all things, not just the law. Quote, but I believe, but I believing in Christ am by faith crucified also with Christ, so that all these things are crucified and dead unto me. Unquote. R. A. Cole writes um, about this section of um, being crucified with Christ. Uh, quote: This is a simple statement of Paul's relation to the law. Paul's understanding is one that everyone needs to make when accepting Christ and rejecting all that one may think can justify them. Cole writes, quote, Men who spend all their lives in fear of death sometimes find a strange relief when, when death itself comes. There is nothing left to fear. 
So it was with Paul. He had labored all his life under the nagging fear that perhaps in spite of all his rigorous observance to the law, he might not be able, after all, to win God's favor thus. Unquote. How exactly is someone to be crucified with Christ unless they have first trusted in him? Having then trusted in him is to die to self and live in Christ. Riken says, quote, Since it is the life I live, I even have a self. But the only self I have is the one that is united to Christ by faith. My life is the life that Christ lives in me, the life I live by faith in the Son of God, unquote. John Calvin unites this faith directly with the love of Christ. Quote, How comes it that we live by the faith of Christ? Calvin asks. Because he loved us and gave himself for us. The love, I say, with which Christ embraced us led him to unite himself to us, and this he completed by his death. By giving himself for us, he suffered in our person. Moreover, faith makes us partakers of everything that it finds in Christ. Unquote. So, verse 20 brings us back to the central idea of faith in Paul's soteriology. Hendrickson looks to address any misunderstanding that somehow, in a mystic sense, our personality has been merged with Christ. He writes that Paul, quote, fully clears up this point by stating, and that life which I now live in flesh, I live in faith, the faith which is in the Son of God, unquote. Hendrickson catalogs 12 eyes in verses 19 through 21, indicating, quote, this faith is very personal, and this both as the subject and the object. Each individual must make his own decision, and each believer experiences his own fellowship with Christ, relying on him with all confidence of his own heart. Then, also, this faith is personal as to its object. Christ, not something pertaining to Christ, but Christ himself, unquote. Bruce writes that, quote, even the believer's present life in mortal body, says Paul, is lived in faith union with Christ, the Son of God, unquote. Schreiner comments that, quote, Paul's faith has a specific reference, for he trusts in Christ, who displays his love by giving his life for Paul's sake, who is paradigmatic of all believers on the cross, unquote. So, the decision to translate faith, faithfulness of, or faith in is of no real concern. Uh, the noun pisti is a singular dative form of pistis. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, Galatians, defends the translation faith in. He says, quote, The grammatical, contextual, and theological issues are basically the same as verse 16, unquote. Moo gives two proofs that are worth quoting in full. Quote, First, with faith in, Put first in the clause, perhaps for emphasis, before the verb, Paul feels it necessary to use an article in order to make clear that the following genitive phrase goes without the noun pisti. But the presence of the article does nothing to change the basic semantic situation. Second, Paul describes the Son of God with two parallel principal clauses, who loved me and gave himself for me. The article goes with both principles. But the fact that they undeniably focus on Christ's own activity provides no reason to think that Pisti must also describe an activity of Christ.
unquote. So my summary and my response to all this, um, the law gospel perspective or the subject, the objective genitive perspective, one we just read, uh, you know, talked, discussed, um, does not make a very convincing argument for the reason behind some of their translation choices in verse 20. Through most of the commentaries, the idea of faith in the Son of God is to be read into the text, even if faith of the Son of God is within their preferred translation. Mu's understanding of the grammatical reasoning for translating faith in seems disjointed. A closer look shows that we have a present active indicative of Zoe, I live, surrounded by three feminine datives, preposition, noun, and article. Then a series of genitives follow. The dative preposition N gives the word options of in, with, by, or to. Um, Donker has this to say, um, uh, generally, quote, generally functioning as a marker of position within, but used to govern numerous other categories such as means, agency, cause, and associated aspect, frequently rendered within, but with numerous other resources in English to express contextual nuances of n as at, on, among, near, with, by, unquote. The article with n or in in English with pisti or faith form the expression of in the faith and paired with zoe, I live in the faith. We could read, as Mu suggests, that I live, parenthetically here, because of my faith uh, in the love and giving of the Son of God. I would like to present four reasons why I do not think this is the case. So we're going to go over the half hour mark again today. First, of the commentaries and sermons speaking of this verse, none try to translate it in such a way as to put our faith in the activities of Christ for our justification rather than in Christ himself. Second, the use of the article has been argued by Dunn in verse 16 to signify the subjective genitive use. Either te, the, the article for the, signals the subjective use or an anarthrous construction does, which means that there is no definite article. Verse 16 is not far away from Paul's mind at this point, and it does, um, oh, you got to turn the page here. Uh, I mean, it's taken us weeks to get away from verse 16, but it, it has not taken Paul you know, very far you know, to get away from 16. 16. So, um, it, it does, turn to my page here, uh, cause us to wonder if any construction would ever be possible in the subjective genitive or in the objective genitive perspective for Paul to ever say faith of Christ. Third, we may expect the article to be used by Paul when relating to God's faithfulness as Dunn has demonstrated in verse 16. Uh, Ian G. Wallace in his book, The Faith of Christ in Early Christian Traditions, writes this, quote, Faith in these contexts constitutes the means by which people enter into relationship with God in terms dictated by God's prior action. In the second category, amen denotes both divine and human conduct with reference to an existing relationship, which is usually defined in terms of covenant. 
Thus, God is faithful to his prior promises, actions, or commitments, and may entrust certain aspects of his faithfulness to others. For its part, humankind is expected likewise to respond in faithfulness, unquote. So, recognizing God's faithfulness and Paul using the term Son of God to refer to Christ in this verse brings us to the fourth reason for rejecting the use of the objective genitive in verse 20. Again, the objective genitive is faith in Christ. The textual variant of um, theu kai christu uh, rather than weu to theu in this verse should give us pause on what the church has been thinking through history. And those two things mean, you know, um, uh, God and Christ, of God and Christ rather than um, of the Son of God. Um, Bruce parenthetically makes mention of this variant in his commentary. Quote, the textual variants are interesting, but make no difference to the sense. Unquote. Matura briefly mentions the manuscripts that read Theu Kai Christu, which is of um, God and Christ, but does not go into any detail why they may have been created. The textual critic note in the New English Translation Bible reads, A number of important witnesses has given um, of God in Christ instead of the Son of God, uh, found in the majority of manuscripts, including several important ones. The construction of God in Christ appears to be motivated as a more explicit affirmation of the deity of Christ, following, as it apparently does, uh, the Granville Sharp rule. Although Paul certainly has an elevated Christology, explicit God talk with reference to Jesus does not normally appear until the later books, for example, Titus 2.13, Philippians 2.10-11, and probably Romans 9.5. For different arguments, but the same textual conclusions, there you can look at the uh, New English Translation Bible and uh, and this particular note. So, uh, unquote. So these manuscript variants show the desire not just for an explicit affirmation of the deity of Christ, but in doing so, equating the faith faithfulness of God to Jesus Christ as named by Paul in verse 16. In light of these four points, to you, the use of the subjective genitive outweighs the objective genitive. The question before us is the same that was posed in verse 16. Which are we to choose, faithfulness or faith of? I argued above in verse 16, or rather a couple weeks ago, listening to this podcast, maybe a month ago, um, that the righteousness that righteousness could not come from the works of the law, but only through the faith of Christ. Faith of Christ and Christ's faith are proper translations in verse 16 in relation to the law by contrast. Christ's faith is the impetus of our justification. In verse 20, Paul is not rehashing justification as understood in past tense only, but he highlights the next aspect of the justification that we now that we live in now, sanctification. 
The rightful place of mankind in creation is to relate to God with an eternally perfect faith. Christ is our faithfulness to God, and we, through him, live in his faithfulness. This is why Paul uses the present active indicative of zoe, or I live, because the faithful continuation is presently revealed. The faithfulness of the Son of God is not to the law, but to God alone. To assure that we understand this faithfulness is not to the law for justification, Paul reinforces the impossibility of righteousness through the law in verse 21. Therefore, the faithfulness of the Son of God is to be preferred over the faith of the Son of God. Hey everyone, I want to thank you for tuning into the Theology Pit. Um, head on over to samsonstick.com, give us a like, drop a donation, and uh, next week we are going to look at verse 21. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you. Mm-hmm.